As I stood in the L.A. office of the FBI's bank robbery coordinator, veteran FBI agent Bill Rader pointed to a wall plastered with bank surveillance photos. Rader ticked off the nicknames of a rogues gallery of serial bank robbers. The Baby Bandits, the Big Nose Bandit, the Big Ears Bandit, the Skunk Bandit, the Ponytail Bandit, the Grandpa Bandit. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs with a story from inside the crime scene tape at what was the bank robbery capital of the world in the 1980s and 90s, Los Angeles, California. I met Bill Rader in 1997 while doing a series of stories about the upsurge in violent bank robberies across the United States. Bank tellers were being shot and customers were taken hostage. California's takeover bank robbery epidemic was spreading across the nation. Rader, who spent most of his 33 years with the FBI on the bank robbery squad, dispatched agents to the scene of robberies, 28 in one day alone. After he retired, Rader wrote a book about his favorite cases titled Where the Money Is, True Tales from the Bank Robbery Capital of the World. He also provided technical advice for Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Catch Me If You Can. Rader advised how actor Tom Hanks should dress and talk like an FBI agent did in the 1960s and 70s, and what a bullpen looked like back in those days when button-down FBI agents worked together in an open office at their desk. Rader assigned colorful monikers to wanted bank robbers based on their appearance, clothing, M.O., or unusual habits. For example, the Spider-Man bandit didn't scale walls. Rather, spider-web-like tattoos on his forearms earned him the nickname. The colorful and quirky nicknames helped generate more news coverage and more tips by creating a picture in people's minds. Rader told me that the tradition of assigning memorable nicknames dated back to Jack the Ripper, who killed and mutilated prostitutes in late 19th century London. As Rader and I scanned the wall, he stopped dead on a surveillance photo of two bank robbers clad head-to-toe in black body armor and armed with assault rifles. Raider dubbed the pair the High Incident Bandits. They had shot up two banks in the San Fernando Valley a few months earlier. With an ominous foreshadowing, Raider told me they were not just dressed for a bank robbery, but for a confrontation. Indeed, a month later, the two heavily armed gunmen, dubbed the High Incident Bandits by Raider, shot it out with police after robbing a bank in North Hollywood. The running gun battle lasted 44 minutes. The pair were armed with thousands of rounds of ammunition and fully automatic assault rifles. Wounded officers lay bleeding, pinned down. Armed with 9mm pistols and 38 caliber revolvers, the police were no match. An order crackled across police radio transmissions to shoot for the head as officers realized their rounds were bouncing off the robber's body armor. In the end, both robbers were killed and 12 police officers and eight bystanders were wounded. It was a case of life 
imitating art. Two years earlier, the movie Heat featured a similar paramilitary-style robbery and shootout in L.A. Written and directed by Michael Mann, Heat is a classic American crime film. It pits Al Pacino as an LAPD detective against Robert De Niro, who plays a career thief and the gang's leader. Now, Mann has teamed up with award-winning author Meg Gardner to write a suspenseful novel titled Heat 2. It tells the backstory of the character in the years before and after the iconic movie. Meg Gardner is my guest on this episode of True Crime Reporter. She is a New York Times bestselling author of 16 thrillers. Her previous novel, The Dark Corners of the Night, features FBI profiler Caitlin Hendricks, which is in development by Amazon Studios for a television series. Here's my interview with Meg Gardner. Meg, uh, welcome to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Uh, I want to talk to you about Heat 2 because Heat the movie was really became something of life imitating art. I was doing a bank robbery series across the country, and two years after Heat, we had the North Hollywood shootout, which is the, the biggest bank robbery shootout in the history of the U.S., how much of you of Heat to the book now with Michael Mann is inspired by real life events? Enough to give uh, uh, two authors uh, a head start in creating a um, a thriller that we hope has uh, feels authentic to the lives of the people who are on all sides of the law. So um, yeah, Heat the movie uh, famously is about a uh, crew of Highline bank robbers headed by Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, and the LAPD homicide detective who is uh, hot on their trail, uh, Vincent Hanna, played by Al Pacino. And uh, we wanted to make sure that the lives these people would be really living uh, feel that um, feel three-dimensional, feel vivid, feel uh real that uh, that you could we could have readers understand through a thriller how people came to uh, embrace a bank robbery as their uh, as their vocation in their minds or as their the the way they uh, put the food on the table uh, or look to a way to escape eventually around the world to someplace uh, uh, soft and dreamy and how men like Hannah uh come to find that their purpose in life is hunting people who carry off huge bank scores. The more dangerous, uh, the crazier, the darker, the better in their mind. That That's what makes them go. So um, we talk to a lot of uh, police officers and um, mm -hmm. retired, I will say, retired bank robbers. <laughs> to find out what uh, what their lives uh, were like. Michael Mann grew up in Chicago, where much of the early action in the novel is set. And he was uh, became very good friends with a number of detectives on the Chicago police force. So that's where the some of the ideas for Heat uh, originated and grabbed hold of him and have never let go, even over the decades, so that uh, we carried on. Well, it was the quintessential American crime, you know, going back to Bonnie and Clyde and Pretty Boy Floyd, 
and those types, but it seems today it's it's waned. Bank robbery, yes, there was uh, as you as you mentioned, uh, especially in the eighties and nineties, there was a huge surge in bank robberies, especially in Southern California, for a number of reasons, including the uh, ubiquity of freeways and bank branches placed conveniently right. close to uh, a lot of getaway routes. Uh, Bank robbers who um, who stole for uh, money for to feed their drug habit, perhaps, or uh, uh, use their drug habit as an excuse to get the rush from carrying out bank robberies. But uh, the uh, law enforcement wised up. Banks uh, took uh, extra precautions against uh, against that kind of thing, and uh, it, maybe it just went out of fashion. Did you happen in your research to talk to to Bill Rader? He was the legendary head of the bank robbery squad in L.A. for almost 33 years. Did not. Uh, but that's that's a name I, I guess I should uh, keep in the keep in my back pocket because um, it's it's fascinating. And I know readers and viewers uh, get really interested in figuring out why people do this, how they would carry it off. I think uh Sometimes people enjoy the idea of watching a bank score thinking, as uh, as Macaulay tells bank customers in Heat, we are not here for your money. We're here for the bank's money, that, uh, that your money is insured, which is uh, a way of calming people who are uh, being held at gunpoint while he's actually yeah. stealing uh, a whole bunch of money. But uh, but that's that's part of the, the reason people uh, might uh, be curious about uh, these stories. Well, and you talk, You mentioned earlier the, the the thrill of the hunt for the, in that case, the LAPD detective played by Al Pacino. You can still see that if you, and we, we've hung out with them, U.S. Marshals, the fugitive hunters. That still right. is out mm-hmm. there. What do you think that is that, that boy, they live it. They're, obs- they're obsessed just like the character in the movie and, and, the, and the book. Oh, there are a lot of reasons why. Um why people find that uh, purposeful as well as mm-hmm. exhilarating. Maybe that's the, the combination for, yes. uh, for people who can do this job in the, in the story. Hannah, um, in the prequel section, it becomes clear he grew up in rural Illinois, essentially, and uh, knew he wanted to be somewhere else, didn't know how to, uh, what he wanted to do, but knew he wanted to get, get out. And so, running, chasing, trying to figure out what it was he was after, leads him into the Marine Corps, leads him uh, to the police force. But finally, he gets so caught up in the idea of the chase, and he's a he is a brilliant detective. So the the those rare moments when it's not just accumulating data or sitting at a desk, uh, sorting through, you know, evidence logs when when they when the when the pieces of evidence uh, click and uh, light up uh, his understanding of the case and how to find someone, that's what makes him go. And I think uh, that holds true for a lot of people. Plus, you don't sit just behind a desk uh, going through Facebook profiles on your computer these days. So you know, yeah. U.S. Marshals uh, are out there. <laughs> So, as you know, I do nonfiction with a podcast and our television series, but you doing fiction, can you give us a sense, how do you get in the head of these characters you create? And do you use, is, is a lot of fodder for this 
detectives and investigators you've met during your writing career? Where does this come from? The love of writing has always been with me, and the uh, I've always been a fan of thriller fiction as well as uh, as well as nonfiction uh, crime and suspense. But uh, telling stories about people who are on the edge of life and death, who where the stakes are extremely high, and uh, losing can be deadly, and there's uh, intense conflict, there's uh, incredible passion, there's uh, you know the roller coaster, high octane pedal to the metal ride uh, to find out uh, what's going to happen at the end. That always um, that always thrilled me as a reader. So that's what I wanted to write. And uh, yes, talking to people who do the jobs, who live in that world is in, absolutely invaluable. That uh, shows us um, what really goes on in their minds, their hearts, their workaday lives, their their family lives and drama. Mm-hmm. So talking to people who do the job is really the very best way to um, to really get inside the world. And this was something that Michael Mann has always insisted upon in all his work um, through television and film. And now the novel is really understanding um, uh, a culture, whether it's the culture of law enforcement, the culture of uh, of, of outlaws uh, in a particular venue, to 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 ground the story in something that yeah. uh, that feels authentic. So so yeah, we and for this book, we did talk to we we wrote out with the LAPD, um, and as I said, we um, got some inside uh, expertise on how to carry out a bank tunnel job. Well, I don't want to spoil the book, but will we see another shootout? <laughs> Another shootout. Uh, if readers are, are are curious, well, golly, let's say this, uh, it's it's set in an era when certainly um, uh, the bank robbers weren't walking in with Nerf guns, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's not too spoilery to say that uh, that the Macaulay's crew. Uh, goes up against a, a drug cartel and those, uh, those folks aren't known for handing out ice cream yeah. cones. Okay. Well, now uh, they and, walk uh, into banks with computer <laughs> cyber tools. Exactly. And, uh, and likewise, the uh, Chicago police uh, department uh, is uh, in the story there after a home invasion crew, which is uh, very okay. violent. And um, so, yes, they, uh, they are armed and ready. Well, you talked earlier about the, the life and death glimpse of that and stuff. Are those the elements you think that make true crime so popular, where it's, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? That's definitely part of it, that um, these are big issues. This is what what's bigger uh, to those of us walking the earth than questions of life and death. And um, we have families, we have communities, and we want to know and understand partly to protect ourselves and partly just to get uh, a glimpse of, uh, you know, transgression mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, sometimes shocking, sometimes baffling. We want to understand what makes uh, people uh, commit outrageous crimes. And uh, certainly in true crime, uh, we want to uh, see how, how actual cases are resolved because we still have a hunger for 
uh, for justice. And we have the uh, certainly in in real life, as in uh, yes. a lot of crime fiction, we we believe that justice is something that exists and can be sought, and sometimes can be uh, can be reached. So that's why we want to uh, to uh, find out about these stories. Now, you're a graduate of the Stanford Law School. You practice law in Los Angeles, and then you taught writing. Where did the transition to crime novel author come in all of this? It came from uh, knowing from very early on that uh, writing uh, was something that I absolutely loved and hoped mm-hmm. to be able to uh, to do at some level in some way someday because giving up on that, even if, even if it only became a hobby, that uh, that seemed like it would be wasting um, wasting something that, uh, something that was wonderful. So I, uh, I, I practiced law. I was, I did uh, commercial litigation in Los Angeles. I, I wasn't a criminal lawyer, but, um, yeah. eventually when I, uh, was, uh, young and newly married and quickly had three <laughs> small children, I was, uh, I decided that arguing for a living, uh, going to court every day wasn't, uh, wasn't, uh, what I wanted to do, burning the candle at both ends and the middle all the time. So. I was offered a position uh, teaching uh, legal writing at the University of California, and I got to basically I had carte blanche to create a course, and it was uh, it was it was absolutely wonderful, and that kept me alive in the idea that uh, that somewhere I was teaching writing, uh, that was keeping my head in the game of writing, and that uh, um, once I got the babies to sleep, maybe I could uh, write on the side. So when you were teaching, had you already started writing articles or were they more scholarly legal uh, issues? Uh, well, I, I did a lot of uh, every every trial lawyer does a whole lot of writing, as I'm, I'm sure you you know that uh, that every every brief you submit to the court right. is uh, is a narrative. It's a it's a it's a story of how things have gone terribly wrong between people. And it's your job as a lawyer to uh, tell that story in as compelling and persuasive a way as you can. Uh, I was then writing <laughs> articles for uh, for small magazines that paid, in, uh, that paid in copies. I was writing short stories. I had the idea for uh, for a, a caper novel that I was uh, I was desperate to write. And, and that's when I realized I had no idea how to write a novel that uh, I had uh, spent years writing every day. <laughs> and so I had presumed that, well, I know how to write. Uh, uh, but um, turning a story into a compelling plot with gripping characters that uh, holds readers on the edge of their seat for uh, for 300 pages um, is a different discipline and takes a lot of practice. Well, and not to mention the discipline of just sitting down at the keyboard in writing. Uh, you know, I have to find that time of day and turn everything off. I'm sure you do, too. And I, exactly. I, I presume you have a word count you're trying to achieve every day. I do. And uh, because I've been fortunate enough to have uh, for many years to have book contracts, yeah. then uh, I know uh, when my deadline is. I know how long a novel uh is generally going to be ninety to hundred thousand words. In my case, I know how many how long it takes to type those many words, and then to revise the big steaming pile mm-hmm. of um, 
of uh, junk that you initially create with your first draft. And so I, when I'm doing a first draft, I try to do 2,000 words a day. And I taught myself to do this by saying, don't edit, don't worry about it. They're just words. Get them down, Get the, put the story on the page, uh, and then you can fix it. All right, Meg, we're going to pause for a moment. And when we come back, let's talk about your other work. We're talking with Meg Gardner, and we're going to pick up with her series called Unsub. And for our listeners, Unsub is the FBI term for unknown subject. Meg, the, the first book, Unsub, I've read it's kind of based on the Zodiac Killer. Is that correct? It is. Every novel in the series has a, uh, a kernel of a real case uh, somewhere uh, buried in it. As a, as a spark, as its genesis. And uh, I grew up in uh, California and uh, can remember vaguely uh, my parents being alarmed by this, uh, this creature, this killer called Zodiac, and being shocked to, to have them tell me that this was somebody who killed people just uh, because uh, he enjoyed it. And that... Uh, really rocked me as a little kid. And um, later on, when I was uh, um, thinking about writing a, a, a thriller, it came to me, the, the idea that, the, you know, the Zodiac uh, went quiet, but was never identified. May still be out there. The Zodiac has never been identified or apprehended officially, and has certainly not been brought to, brought to justice. So I thought, being an author yeah. who lets her mind spin out, uh, okay, if, a, if an infamous, a notorious cold case suddenly went yeah. hot again after twenty years, uh, what would happen? So that was the origin of Unsub about a Bay Area serial killer called Prophet who. Um, disappeared and uh, seems to have uh, been resurrected now 20 years uh, after after his his last killing and of course he taunted police and everybody with these cryptic messages and symbols that you know as a group recently have said they've decoded them some people think they've identified someone that's deceased do you buy it do you think we really know who this was i think the i think law enforcement has uh, some top suspects. I don't know that they are ever mm -hmm. going to uh, definitively yeah. um, name name that person. I know that a number of retired detectives still feel haunted by the case that they were never able to uh, identify the killer and bring him to justice, and that it is um, it clings to them even in retirement. <laughs> So you introduce uh, Caitlin Hendricks, a narcotics detective in Unsub, and then she evolves into an FBI profiler in your uh, your second book, Into the Black Nowhere, which I also read was inspired by Ted Bundy. It's set in Texas, but it really sounded a lot like uh, the serial killer Kenneth McDuff that we've done our television series about and the podcast about really fit him, what he was doing. Uh, tell us about how that serial killer was operating and how much of it is inspired by real life. I was fascinated uh, by 
the way someone like Ted Bundy completely masked his um, homicidal uh, mania of mm-hmm. not not psychiatrically, but how he masked his killings under a veneer of being um, seemingly the kind of uh, young man that a lot of parents would have been happy to have their daughters bring home for Sunday dinner uh, in, in that era that, uh, he was, uh, he was polite. He was well-spoken, well-dressed. He, um, he was well-educated. He volunteered. Well, no, he, he, he worked for a suicide, a crisis hotline and apparently was uh, his coworkers, including Ann rule, uh, right. I knew thought that he was, uh, an empathetic and effective a counselor under extreme stress. He worked for the governor of Washington. So people could, were looking at this uh, seemingly uh, model of, um, of clean cut uh, manhood and thinking he had promise, but of course it was all a mask. And uh, I, I wondered, uh, how would you, how would you strip that mask off of someone? And Caitlin and the, the heroine of the series um, hunt serial predators. So I thought, here's a here's someone who's charming, who is uh, seemingly successful, who nobody wants to believe could be uh, a killer. How would she and uh, and her team go about um, undercutting that and getting the evidence and bringing him to justice? And she becomes a profiler. How did you kind of get in the head of profiling? to be authentic in, in, as you do with her and what she does. I read all of John Douglas's books, <laughs> Mindhunter yeah. and the rest of that. Number one, that's, that's, that sounds flip, but it's, uh, it's true. You, you, you read up on uh, the work of uh, people who spent decades developing the, the profession and uh, doing the work. And I, um, I also have taken a couple of, um, of uh, workshops uh, run by the FBI specifically for, for, for writers to, uh, to help us uh, understand uh, what the, what the mm-hmm. Bureau's work is like in uh, various fields. Yeah. I knew one of the original profilers uh, for sex crimes is Roy Hazelwood. Roy is mm-hmm. his past. But uh, he really was able to help me when back 30 years ago when I was chasing Kenneth McDuff. And it was just amazing the insights and how they could examine a crime scene and extrapolate uh, a profile Mm -hmm. of the criminal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's working backwards um, from uh, from crime scene evidence Uh, because uh, it's a it's a. um, it's a simple but not obvious insight that the criminal and the victim must cross paths and that uh, you're going to find evidence of that at the crime scene. And uh, you can, you can use that intersection to, uh, to, to extrapolate uh, as much as possible and, uh, and narrow down the pool of people who you can focus your efforts on. So your third book in the unsub series, dark corners of the night, uh, now you've got a uh, serial killer named the Midnight Man who is killing parents but leaving the children unharmed. What is it you think that 
is so compelling about serial killer stories in, in, in my podcast that they're the, the top listen to. And in our television show, that's what really everybody, you know, was, was just taken by. What do you think that psychological phenomenon, are we all sitting there wondering, is there, is there a serial killer inside me potentially, or my uh, significant other asleep next to me? One one hopes not, but I, I've I've spoken to psychiatrists and asked them uh, what they think the uh, the the intrigue is, and they say, "Well, we're as we're as fascinated as uh, as as everybody else." Part of it, I think, is uh, is wanting to uh, to see a glimpse into people who are so transgressive, uh, who have who who break every bound that uh, that society sets who who kill for uh thrill uh or for uh some kind of um mission or for some kind of uh pleasure uh not the ordinary seeming so so ordinary motives such as money or uh money or love or uh revenge that um they're I, most people I don't think are looking to find out if they think they fit the mold of a serial killer. Although I, the the family of the happy face killer has said that he did watch a lot of um, true crime uh, shows uh, and uh, possibly too, uh, because he thought he was so much smarter than all the uh, killers who were getting caught on those shows uh, that in, in hindsight, that's why he loved those shows. But I think part of it is um uh, the idea that if we can possibly understand uh, what makes someone uh, a killer who who lives among us, who is uh, generally part of society, uh, who might be your next door neighbor, uh, how can we protect ourselves? That if we are if we um, educate and uh, keep ourselves uh, uh, alert, that uh, we won't become a victim. Well, I always get to ask the question why what is making them tick why do they do these things and i really can't ever come up with a any kind of an explanation that makes any sense no um and that makes them extra scary because it's nothing that you could forestall or head off mm-hmm. it's uh, and um in a uh, in a novel that makes them of course a a ruthless antagonist uh, mm-hmm. Someone who is not just going to suddenly decide that uh, okay, maybe instead of you know doing killings, I'm going to you know yeah. open a pet rescue center instead. Sure. So, uh, but we as a people, I think, are are just um, fascinated with uh, getting a glimpse into a world that we want to reassure ourselves we would never fall into in a way. And again, the stakes are very high if you have a killer who's uh, who can't be dissuaded from uh, from what yeah. they're doing. Well, now you have another series, Evan Delaney, those novels, and that features a journalist. Uh, tell me how you approach that. Me being a journalist makes me interested. Uh, that was my first series, uh, my first novel, China Lake. Um, I was extremely delighted to uh, won the Edgar for Best Paperback Original, and that was. Uh, a novel that I just had an idea for a story. 
And I set out to write it about a young woman who, at the time, I was like, I'm going to start writing uh, crime series, thrillers. I, uh, what will I do? I lived in Southern California. I'll set it in Southern California. Uh, I'm a woman. I'll have a, I'll have a female protagonist. Uh, I was in law and, uh, and, and uh, I'm now writing. So, so I don't have to do too much research. Perhaps I'll have her be, be a journalist with a legal background. So, uh, so I don't stumble over, mm-hmm. over uh, any, anything. And I just had an idea for a story about this young woman who was, uh, was uh, caring for her, First grade nephew while his uh, while his dad was uh, deployed as a naval aviator, and that uh, that his uh, his the, the little boy's estranged mother uh, joins an apocalyptic uh, cult and decides that she wants to bring her son into it as well. So then it becomes uh, a family drama, uh, a uh, um, a protect the kid drama, and uh, how to uh, how to. Uh, sort out several murders drama and I had no idea what I was doing except I wanted it to be a uh, a thrilling story and I knew that I had to set the bar extremely high and clear it so that I could uh, reach a publishable level and fortunately did and then I was shocked when they said how about a sequel <laughs> my publisher said how about a sequel so that's how it became a series well, Stephen King surely liked it. He said it was the f- finest crime suspense uh, series he've ever come across in the last 20 years at the time. Boy, that must have made you feel great, you know, just coming it, out of uh, the gate with this. It, um, yeah, it uh, knocked me flat. And it, uh, you know, Stephen King, I have nothing but gratitude for him that he he really uh, pays it forward to so many other other writers and artists and that uh, that opened a lot of doors for me and um, he'll always be the man in my eyes and then you have another series joe beckett joe beckett is a forensic psychiatrist again you've got to become a forensic psychiatrist creating and uh, working on these crimes did you have to talk to a lot of forensic psychiatrists or read a lot of material I, I spoke to a lot of psychiatrists uh, and uh, found one forensic psychiatrist who uh, who I could rely on to uh, mm-hmm. to be willing to 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 uh, to extend his expertise and uh, knowledge and insight to me. So uh, that was really important to me to understand again what the job is really like uh, to to. To give respect to the people who who do the work, to give respect to the the the, the doctors, the the law enforcement, the families of victims, uh, and make it uh, an exciting and entertaining um, and informative story, but that uh, also feels grounded in the real world. And it was just it's just fascinating to uh, to get inside the minds of people. I mean, I, I'm yes. sure you know that as well that. Um, a psychiatrist friend says they went into this, the, that specialty because they can think of nothing that is more fascinating than the human mind. Well, was there anything you learned from them about the criminal mind that just like knocked you out of the chair? Nothing about the criminal mind in particular. Um, it was more about how they approach uh, victim uh, understanding victims. Because what uh, what Joe in the novels does and what psych forensic psychiatrists sometimes do uh, is perform psychological autopsies. 
which means that uh, they're the last resort in cases that the, the evidence can't um, can't identify whether a death is literally accident, natural suicide, or homicide. So it's uh, how they understand psychology, how they understand death statistics, how they reconstruct a timeline of the person's life, how they uh, investigate whether someone had enemies. I mean, you know, you you get crushed by a bus. Uh, did you trip off the curb? Um, <laughs> did you throw yourself there in despair or did someone push you? So that's uh, that was fascinating to me to see how you would try to uh, sort out all those threads and come to a conclusion that uh, could help the family and uh, the justice system determine um, what had really happened. Well, I know the fans of Heat, the movie listening to this, or they've got to be wondering, Heat 2, is there another movie coming? What do you think? Well, uh, Michael Mann, my uh, brilliant co-author uh, and progenitor of the entire project, uh, has said that he... Um, he sees this as a as a big movie, and um, who am I to <laughs> to contradict anything that he says? And what was it? What was it like collaborating with him? It was brilliant. It was um, it was it was challenging. It was I felt a lot of uh, responsibility, felt weight on my shoulders, knowing that I was uh, going to be working with someone who had uh, who was an icon of mine to begin with for all his uh, work in film mm -hmm. and television and who had uh, written and directed heat, which is the greatest heist movie ever, ever yes. made. And that uh, he knew these characters, he knew their stories and that he wanted to expand something that has become a classic uh, into the before and after of, uh, of that world. And that if I was going to take on his characters and uh, get inside of them, that it, uh, it was a, it was a privilege and a responsibility, but um, working with him was uh, was exhilarating. And uh, I know I had to bring my A game every single minute, um, which is a great challenge to have. How did the two of you meet or come together to collaborate? He uh, he had the the, the the concept for writing uh, Heat Two as a novel, and um, we have the same literary agent. And after Michael read Unsub, he uh, he wanted to speak to me about that. I mean, he, he, he's an extraordinarily accomplished writer. Uh, until now, his work has all been in, um, has been in film and television, which is um, quite a different discipline than writing a, a story in novel form at 400 pages, you know, 120,000 words. So he uh, wanted to uh, collaborate as he's done on film. He wanted to collaborate with a, with a writer who had experience working in that, uh, in that arena. And, um, so we just uh, we, we you know we circled each other and and talked and, and worked it out and uh, you know threw ourselves into the task. Was there a particular uh, character for the movie that you were very interested in? Like mine was Val Kilmer. I'd like to know more of the Val Kilmer story. Exactly, and uh, lucky for you, you learn more of that in Heat too. Val Kilmer plays Chris Hurlis, the the second in command to Neil McCauley's uh, crew. Uh, they're um, it's, uh, we find out they're very close. They're uh, brothers from another mm -hmm. mother, in a sense. And uh, Chris is the lone. It's not. This is not terribly spoilerish <laughs> after okay. after decades to say that Chris is. Uh, 
a survivor, the last survivor of uh, of the crew after um, after heat. So the the book opens uh, the next day with him near dead from a gunshot wound after this massive uh, battle with the LAPD in the streets of uh, downtown Los Angeles, uh, desperate to escape. Uh, Al Pacino's character is is hunting him, and uh, what's he going to do? He knows he's going to have to. Uh, abandon his uh, his life in America if he's going to uh, live another day, that he's going to have to leave his family behind for their safety as well as uh, as well as his own. Um, where's he going to go? What's he going to do? So we we that sets up the story, and um, then it goes back in time to uh, to how he uh, how he and uh, Neil are living big vivid lives and uh, taking down big exciting scores. Did uh, Michael Mann share anything with you about the staging of that gun battle in Heat, which is the kind of gun battle of all gun battles in crime shows? Yes, and, and but a lot of it is material that uh, if you read uh, interviews with him, uh, mm-hmm. the, follow the director's commentary on the movie and so forth, you can find out as well that he had all the actors um, – train ahead of filming uh with um with the former sas operators at uh, the los angeles sheriff's department uh, yeah. firing range uh with a maniacal focus on safety he's uh, he's uh, keen to keen to make sure everyone understands but uh to 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 learn how uh how to um how to look uh, look realistic and uh and they did that the uh that the shootout they had to um they had to do it on weekends because they really filmed it on the on the it's not filmed on a studio lot it's filmed on the streets of downtown los angeles so they had to uh to close off the streets and they could only do that usually on a sunday morning so they had to try to get the weather to match they had to set all those uh mm-hmm. shot up uh, police cars back in place get everybody back in their in their costumes and um I will say that as far as authenticity, a friend of mine who's a former uh, U.S. Marine Corps officer said that uh, they they watched that scene um, to learn how to conduct a bounding overwatch by uh, by seeing how Val Kilmer um, loads, reloads, and uh, repels an ambush in uh, on, uh, mm-hmm. in that scene in the movie. Well, Meg, what's next for you? Is there more in the unsub series, or are you going another direction? Well, I do have another unsub book that will be out in 2023 and uh, then setting out on, uh, we'll see what. <laughs> now that uh, Heat 2 is uh, is on bookshelves, it's uh, it's time to launch myself into another thriller. So more news on that soon. I have to ask as a fellow writer, do you wake up in the middle of the night with this stuff running through your head? Absolutely. Don't you? Oh, yeah. I always keep that notepad beside me and... My problem exactly. is I can't go back to sleep. I've got to stay up for two hours and get it all out, you know? Yes. And I've learned to have, I also have a flashlight because if you just try to scribble it down in the dark, then um, it doesn't yeah. make any sense in the morning. You need to make sure that your writing is legible. But uh, um, waking up is, uh, uh, you know, your unconscious mind does a lot of work for you, uh, putting connections together and solving mm-hmm. problems that uh, sometimes we don't see when we're um, sitting at the keyboard. 
Well, Meg, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I want our listeners to know that you can you can find all of her books wherever they're sold, Unsub, Heat 2, Dark Corners of the Night from Unsub, which is being made into a movie, uh, the Joe Beckett series. I recommend it all. It's really good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bank heists were once the quintessential American crime, immortalized with the daring exploits of Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, and Pretty Boy Floyd. In the wake of high-tech surveillance cameras that capture sharp images and hardened cages for tellers, most criminals today have decided bank robbery no longer pays. The FBI even released a bank robber's app so the public could scroll through the photos of suspects to help identify them. As a result, the bank robbery rate has dramatically dropped and gone are the days when you could get away with hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's now largely a crime of the desperate, but it will continue to grip the public imagination in books like Heat 2 by Meg Gardner and Michael Mann. I want to remind our listeners to sign up for our true crime community on our website at truecrimereporter.com. There's a red box on every page where you can sign up. And also, I'm putting links in the show notes to my stories about the bank robbery shootouts in Los Angeles. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness.